I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Jacob understands the value of whole genome sequencing as a diagnostic tool. Jacob and his team were the first to use the technology to diagnose a child with an ultra-rare disease, which allowed doctors to save the boy's life. Jacob, now Chief Medical Genomics Officer for Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, is working to use whole genome sequencing to find answers for other undiagnosed patients and expand its use as a clinical tool. We spoke to Jacob about the use of whole genome sequencing in the clinic, how it's changing the way patients with rare diseases are treated, and the value of a diagnosis even in the absence of available treatments. Howard, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. We're going to talk about Hudson Alpha, the Smith Family Clinic for Genomic Medicine, and And the use of whole genome sequencing to diagnose patients with rare disease. I I thought we could begin with the story of Nicholas Volker, the subject of the book One in a Billion. Who is Nicholas Volker, and and how did you come to cross paths with him? So uh, Nicholas Volker is currently an 11-year-old boy, and I first met him uh, when he was discharged from the hospital in 2010. but the way I got to meet him was through Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, where he would, had been a patient for uh, nearly two years, uh, on and off with some type of, uh, of uh, gut disease that was basically his gut was uh, eating uh, itself from the inside out every time he had food or, or water uh, or anything to drink, I should say. And the, the process was completely novel. No one had ever seen this before. The physicians were stumped. Uh, and they had approached uh, me and my team to see if we could read his DNA and see if we could make a diagnosis. Uh, long story short, you know, this was uh, nearly six years ago. The technology was not as rapid or as cheap or, uh, and in fact, had never been done clinically before. So we set out on a journey to be able to do it. And six months of uh, data analysis and uh, nearly two months of sequencing uh, we ended up making the diagnosis. And so that was the beginning, um, and it was the first uh, paper that was published, scientific paper, I should say, that was published that used uh, DNA sequencing to save a patient's life. And that started our journey um, into genomic medicine and using whole genome sequencing. Well, what did you find when you sequenced Nicholas's genome? And, and given the ultra-rare nature of what he had, how did, how did you know what it was? Well, as with all people, um, Nick has a whole bunch of uh, DNA changes or what we call variants um, compared to any other person. And so in this particular case, um, how do you know, as you, as you asked, uh, which is causal and which isn't? And we use a series of tools. Uh, so first of all, we ask, uh, has anybody else uh, ever been seen with this variation? And since Nick's disease had never been seen before, Anytime there had been a variant that had been seen previously in somebody else, we knew that couldn't be it. So all the research genomes and, and all of that information could be used, even though it wasn't for a clinical purpose. 
So as as Liz Worthy then went through, she was doing the analysis at the time, and she went through uh, this list by list and then would find a variant in a gene that looked interesting. Um, she would then use evolutionary uh, conservation. So DNA is in all living beasts. And you could then say, hey, where does this gene live? So long story short, she was able to find an immune gene, which made sense, it fit with the biology, um, that was conserved all the way down to fruit fly, meaning every species from fruit fly to human has this uh, particular um, gene. And she could then look to see if this variant is found anywhere else. Again, evolution uh, selects against changes that are lethal. And this particular uh, mutation or variation would be lethal because, you know, up until 2010, probably most institutions couldn't have kept a child like Nick alive. And so now what happens is you say, okay, is this unique? And still to this day, uh, Nick and his mom are the only two um, organisms from fruit fly to human that have been sequenced that have that mutation, which is a really strong evidence. After having that evidence, we did some cell tests uh, to look to see what happened. And those cell tests then continued to confirm uh, what we had seen. Um, and then the last piece of information was, well, how come Nick's mom doesn't have it and Nick does? Well, the gene XIAP is found on the X chromosome, and Nick has one copy of the X chromosome. And his mother has too, and therein lied the mystery of why she was okay and he was not. You were actually able to treat Nick with a bone marrow transplant, is that correct? That's correct. It was actually a core blood transplant, but it's a very similar type strategy. And, and what was the thinking in using a cord blood transplant to treat him? Well, his immune system was really um, active, and people knew that. Uh, and so the question then was, if we were to reset his immune system, would that change his gut disease? And so there needed to be some link between the gut's immune system and the, and the food and uh, drinks that he was doing that was causing this. And so what turns out is that we found this gene, XIAP, that connects actually the gut's immune response um, to um, this gene, which then allowed us then to go in and take a look. And what was happening was is that the body thought uh, Nick was under attack when he ate or drank something and said, okay, I'm going to kill these cells to make sure that a virus can't take over the cell machinery and cause an infection. So the body thought it was doing a good thing, uh, and the switch was just simply broken. We're at this strange point where we're we've got better technology to diagnose than, than to treat. How, how often do you get a diagnosis without being able to have a, a therapeutic match for it? And even if there isn't a therapeutic available, is there value in having that diagnosis? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question, which is, you know, what's the utility? And so there's two levels of utility. There is clinical utility, and then there is personal utility. So I'm going to start with personal utility first. So um, for rare undiagnosed diseases, for which there's millions of people that have this, the average time to a diagnosis, if one is ever made at all, is seven years. And in that in that journey, they've seen people have seen more than eight physicians and have been misdiagnosed on average three times. So that diagnostic odyssey is a nightmare. It's expensive for the families. They go from place to place to place, often being told they don't know what's wrong with their child or their loved one. Um, so from a personal utility, being able to say, we've tried everything that's now possible, 
and we've either made a diagnosis or we don't, stops the journey, stops people from going and looking for things, uh, trying to find a solution. So personal utility is very high. On the clinical utility, there's two sides. There's the therapeutics. It's the cure. It's the Nick Volker, which is what attracted everybody's, you know, imagination. Wow, could we cure everybody with this? Well, the answer is no, it's not a cure for everything. But what people are reporting is that on average now for rare undiagnosed disease, it's between 30 and 40 percent of the time a diagnosis can be made, a molecular diagnosis can be made using DNA sequencing. Now, before molecular diagnosis, the average rate of being, uh, sorry, molecular diagnosis with DNA, before that, the average was somewhere between 5 and 10%. So let's call it 7% of the time there was a diagnosis. So that's, that's almost a five-fold increase in the rate of being able to make a diagnosis. So that's a good thing. The other side of this is, is what about management and what about care? So being able to have a cure like what we had for Nick's gut disease is, is going to be rare. These are rare diseases. But what people are reporting is that 80% of the time there's a change in management. What that means is, is that the physician teams or the care teams stop doing trial and error. Oh, let's try this drug. Oh, let's try that or let's try this. They now are able to focus in many cases on a better therapeutic. They often stop using a medication that is actually um, not beneficial to the patient. Um, and they now have uh, a solution to look to see um, if something's going to happen in the future. As you know, you know, science continues to move forward. And once you know what the diagnosis is, you can continue to look for I mean, new therapeutics that may be beneficial. Nick's case was back in 2010. How has the cost and time in using whole genome analysis changed since then? And, and has it yet lowered the bar to use it more broadly as a diagnostic tool? Well, the change in price, I'm, I'm not even sure what we, what we spent, uh, in total on NEC. I mean, I know that, uh, just on the sequencing side, it was about $75,000, um, and it was well over a couple of hundred thousand dollars on the analysis. So I'm not even sure what that cost, just for the sake of discussion. It's over $300,000, and it took us, as I said, you know, nearly seven months to do all this. Nowadays, at Hudson Alpha, we can do a patient um, in uh, 30 days uh, for $6,500, and that's just a massive change. Um, it's not quite, you know, at the $1,000 genome that everybody would like it to be at, um, but we're getting closer and closer to that number. You and your team moved from the Molecular Genetics Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin to Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology in Alabama in 2015. For listeners who may not be familiar with Hudson Alpha, what is it and what attracted you there? What did you see as the opportunity? Yeah, you know, a move from Milwaukee to uh, Wisconsin to Huntsville, Alabama is probably, uh, you know, surprising to some of your listeners. And, and, and in my case, I've been in Milwaukee for nearly 20 years. And Hudson Alpha is a not-for-profit research institute. We have 17 faculty here. It's very similar to an academic environment where, we do grants, we do philanthropy, we're doing basic research. Um, we have a clinic that we've developed called the Smith Family Clinic since we came down here. Um, and then we have colleagues here that uh, are from Stanford, Vanderbilt, Emory, who are all also geneticists. So there's a very strong genetics genomics culture here. So the entire biotechnology institute here is, has a genetics genomics focus. There's also um, the top-notch sequencing technology that's available. So 
We now have here at Hudson Alpha the ability to do 18,000 clinical genomes a year, which is an amazing opportunity. So we have genetic counselors. We have a couple of, of uh, lab directors. We have a couple of physicians that are all now working together on a singular focus, which is how do we get genomic uh, medicine into more and more patients? And then the other part of Hudson Alpha is actually its economic development side, where there's a lot of startup companies. So there's actually 34 startup companies all in the same space, and many of these, they're all biotechnology, but many of them are genomics focused. So you can now see that you can translate much more rapidly from a basic discovery into a clinical application that could then be commercialized and then get gotten out to patients more rapidly. And that was the major attraction was having that technology and having a singular focus versus a medical college that has lots of competing interests. There's lots of other activities that are coming on that versus a place that's just singularly focused on genomic medicine. You mentioned the Smith Family Clinic for Genomic Medicine. What is that? So the Smith Family Clinic is a brand new clinic that we opened the doors. In fact, it was fantastic. It was opened in November. We had Nick Volker come down and, and cut the ribbon. Uh, and it's really a clinic that's designed for whole genome sequencing um, for patients. So if a patient's had their whole genome sequence, they can come here for further evaluation or further analysis. We can see patients here in northern Alabama and, uh, and all through the southeast. Uh, we can do telemedicine for people. We have a whole range of activities that's really designed to help patients that haven't been able to get access to uh, undiagnosed disease. And it's also, we're moving into a new era where we're also looking at the, you know, the opposite side of the coin, which is, okay, rare undiagnosed disease, you know, that's, although it sounds rare and undiagnosed, as we mentioned before, you know, there's up to 20 million Americans with that. But then there's also, what do you do for people that have been adopted? Could you use genomic sequencing for that? And, um, and so the answer is yes, you probably can do that. And what if you're just interested in, you know, getting some insight into your fan, into your, uh, history of, of your family history of, for medical? Could you use genomics for that? And the answer for that is yes. So we're also at the Smith Family Clinic starting to offer services, uh, what we call an insight genome for someone who's healthy or for an adoptee who's trying to build a family history. So that the clinic now serves multiple purposes of helping rare undiagnosed disease, helping adoptees, and helping people that are, you know, really more interested in how do we uh, understand what our genome's telling us. Well, why, why would a doctor refer a patient there, and what type of patient is most likely to benefit? Well, I tell you, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, doctors, for the most part, are still um, trying to understand what's the best application. You know, when do they use this? When do they not use this? And, and what we tell our physicians when we're in the out educating them and doing through our CME courses, you know, we tell them, you know, when you have a case that doesn't meet um what you expect it to meet. There's something unusual about this case, and you've started going down this diagnostic odyssey. Come see us. Have your patient come see us. Let's get the genome sequence. Let's look at this much more rapidly rather than the patient bouncing from place to place to place. So that's number one. And then number two, what is, of course, starting to happen, and we see this all across medicine, and, and not everybody likes it, but as as patients and families start having to pay more and more out of pocket, you know, there is more of a, of a trend towards patients wanting particular 
um, services and laboratories and so forth. And so really we're, we're seeing an increase in people saying, you know, I want to understand my family history better. And I had one physician tell me, and I think this is the great analogy, that from his perspective, you know, the patient is the pilot of that healthcare airplane and the physician's job is to be the co-pilot. How do we now help the patient make good decisions? And there are physicians out there who are saying, geez, you know, if the patient really wants their genome sequenced and, and they want to work with me um, to understand their healthcare better, and I as a physician believe family history is really important, well, why not combine all those together and use genomics uh, with the practice of medicine? And, and I think we'll see over time, and, and we've seen this over and over again, particularly in the undiagnosed disease cases, once a physician realizes how useful it is and how often they're missing things, um, they, they start becoming adopters. You know, the Institute of Medicine just came out with a report just about a year ago that says the average physician makes, on average, 62 misdiagnoses a year. Well, they're not trying to make 62 misdiagnoses a year. So here's another lab value. It's another tool that they can now use with their skill sets to just improve the practice of medicine. Where do payers stand on covering the cost of whole genome sequencing for diagnostic purposes? And is this evolving at all? It is starting to evolve. Um, most of the providers will not offer whole genome sequencing as a, sorry, payers will not offer this as a, as a first line. Um, it's, it's becoming more common to be used as an exome, which is like 1.5% of the genome instead of the whole genome. Um, it's, it's viewed as being more economical. Um, but what we're finding and others are finding is that doing the whole genome, you increase the diagnosis rate by another 25%. So instead of doing an exome, which costs you basically the same amount of money as the whole genome, um, and then failing and then having to, you know, escalate it to the next test, which would be whole genome, why not just do what we call the first test, the, sorry, the best test first? Let's just do that first. And so what has to happen is you really need to work with the insurance companies and, and, and other per, uh, payers and go through the process with them, show them that it is economical. And so we have many different projects underway with, uh, with different uh, payers to demonstrate that this is, that there is economic and clinical and personal utility in this case. But it's just going to take some more time before that happens. In the interim, there's there's many patients who are saying, I really need this now, and they're going with a direct pay model uh, in order to, to get it done sooner. Well, how much of an issue is cost to patients who might want to make use of the clinic? Well, it's a range, of course. I mean, we, we obviously have some patients who can't pay. We have other patients uh, who um, need to find resources around that. We have patients that can pay. And then we're really fortunate here at Hudson Alpha is, you know, we've had really generous community members who have ponied up for what we call the Hero Fund, where there's money available uh, to help offset the cost for families that can't afford it. And so, you know, there's a variety of, of solutions around that. We try to make it not be an issue. And when we were looking to set up the, this clinic, the Smith Family Clinic, there's a lot of concern on our part about, you know, should we do this in advance of having payers lined up? And what we heard over and over and over again from the families is, is give us a solution and allow us the opportunity to find a way to get it paid for rather than don't provide a solution because you don't know how we're going to pay for it. And I really took that to heart as, you know, 
giving them an option is better than giving them no option. The best option with time will be, you know, that it's paid for uh, more commonly. And we're never going to get there if we don't get started and start demonstrating utility. As we have more clinical experience with whole genome sequencing, how do you think this is going to change our understanding of rare diseases and, and the way we treat these patients? Well, um, you know, I, I guess that depends on, on what, where we want to draw the line. So if the, at the most blue sky level, um, you know, if, you're, if your DNA is red on the day that you're born, so there's about 5 million births a year in the United States. So let's say we did that. Now, it's not economical to do that. So for your, for your audience, you know, I don't want to pretend that we're ready, but let's just use this as a, as a thought exercise. So if we're able to do 5 million genomes a year, in five years from now, we'll have 25 million genomes that have been sequenced. At that point in time, America will have all the diseases in our population captured. And since people don't start getting diseases till they're in their 30s for the most part, we now have 25 years to start figuring out what makes Americans sick based on their genes. I think that's a fundamental shift. Everybody talks about moving towards a preventative care or a prospective model. Well, you have to have the data and you have to have the insight and you have to give the pharma companies and the biotech companies and the physicians lead time to know how to use that. So I think the more, the earlier we drive this into care, um, the faster it is. And now I'm sure some of your, uh, some of your audience is going to be skeptical of that. But what they aren't skeptical is, is that family history, your medical family history is really, really important. And so it's been shown over and over again that family history is really a form of cheap genetics, if you will. The problem is most people don't share their information with each other. They don't know the medical terminology. Autopsies aren't done. The diagnosis is often inaccurate or the family's recollection of the diagnosis is inaccurate. So what if we got rid of all of that inaccuracy, the tool that everybody says is incredibly important, and now actually made it quantifiable, made it something that could be used and made it digital, which means it could now be transferred and utilized and benefit as knowledge changes every day. I just think it's a, it's a, it's a frame shift in how we take care of, you know, our, our citizens and our patients. Howard Jacob, Chief Medical Genomics Officer for Hudson Alpha Institute of Biotechnology. Howard, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate chatting with you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.